So what you're really looking for is people who see the world the same way, back to morals and values. You want to take care of your resident. Everybody doesn't want to take care of the resident. It's going to be an absolute disaster, Jesse, if you partner with somebody who's just trying to maximize profit. It's going to be an absolute disaster for you. So make sure you guys have the same thoughts about your customer. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the pleasure of having our extra special multifamily kickstart segment with my man, Jesse. Jesse, how are things out in your area? It's good, Jerome. I'm, uh, I'm here in upstate New York currently. It's April and it's snowing. So it's awesome. It's a great day to uh, be alive. It's a great day to be up here. So <laughs> Arctic chill, baby, coming off in off the water, I assume, huh? Yeah, 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 for sure. But uh, but yeah, uh, great day to uh, be alive uh, Friday before a holiday weekend. So pumped to uh, to get on the phone with you and, and talk real estate, obviously. So yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So tell me where you are and where you're going. Yeah, man. So again, uh, Jesse Fuchsia, born and raised in upstate New York. My full-time kind of W-2 job, I'm an active duty uh, U.S. Army Ranger in the uh, U.S. Army Special Operations down in Fort Benning, Georgia, which is located in Columbus, Georgia. That's kind of like my daytime W-2 job. I've been in the military here for about four years or so. But it's kind of funny how I got into real estate. I got into it probably about five or six years ago, back when I was in college, getting ready to move off campus. And I was like, man, I, you know, talked to my buddies and my dad and stuff. I was like, you know, there's so many slumlords out there and, and just guys who don't take great care of their properties and houses. And I kind of saw a little bit of a niche. So I kind of jumped on it and uh, approached my dad and a couple of my buddies and was like, hey, you know, what if we bought a duplex, you know, like an eight bedroom duplex and we rented it out to guys, but like, obviously took good care of it and took care of our tenants. So that was probably like, you know, five years ago, we started with just an idea uh, with one property of I approached some people with. And then today we've got a, a 13 property portfolio up here in the Albany, New York area that we rent to the college students. And it's an awesome opportunity. Obviously we can rent by the bedroom to kind of maximize our, our NOI and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of been an awesome opportunity owning and operating it with my family and, and doing that was kind of like my first exposure. And then here within the last six months or so, I've kind of had a, you know, a deep conversation, you know, with myself about my why and, and where I want to go and my kind of my goals and stuff like that. And it's like, man, I, I really want to start scaling here to a larger commercial multifamily assets of multifamily apartments, and then also affordable housing with, with mobile home parks and stuff like that. So that started about, you know, six months ago, researching the commercial side and the multifamily side and, and getting on phone calls with, you know, subject matter experts like yourself and networking and, and masterminds, you know, books, podcasts, all that. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now is really just kind of closing that knowledge gap every day, every week, every, every new deal that I underwrite. So that's kind of where I'm at. And then my uh, short-term goal here is to be a, a GP on my first syndication um, here in the next 12 months. So that's kind of like a short-term uh, 12 month goal. So a little bit about you know, who I am, where I'm coming from and, and where I'm trying to go. So, wow. yeah. Well, first off, thank you for your service, man. I think Bo put us together. So it's really He's cool to man. see service yeah. members, not just looking for the money piece of it, but what I really appreciate it was, you know, we want to make sure that we take good care of our residents. 
right? That, yeah, yeah. They're, they're your customer. And a lot of people don't actually see it that way, but they're absolutely your customer. And so it, your focus is outstanding. I think your heart's already in the right place. And so, you know, what questions can I answer for you, brother? Yeah, Jerome, I, you know, the first thing I kind of wanted to uh, bring to you, and it, it goes into this whole part of scaling and stuff like that. And like I said, I do a lot of networking. I'm in the mastermind. But uh, what's kind of like your thoughts and recommendation on really building out that that team that you need for the syndication process? You know, what, what should I be doing to, uh, I guess, you know, maybe network in a different way to, to build that team? But also, you know, what composition should that team be of specifically for the syndication process? Curious your thoughts. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be the first to tell you I'm not a syndicator, right? I, okay. I, I do joint ventures. I do very similar mm-hmm. to what you did with your friends and family with your smaller deals. We just have a network that has a little more capacity. So we're able to buy stuff that's a little bit bigger. And I mean, we're buying in the South, so price per door is a little bit lower. But with that said, I think there's two real businesses that go into running a syndication organization. There's a capital raising or the marketing arm. Right. And then there's the actual operations, finding the deals, running them, figuring out how to drive the NOI up so you can exit and get a big return. And so I've seen the guys that are most successful, guys and gals that are most successful. Somebody's focused on investor relations or the marketing piece. So the raising of money, handling the limited partners, somebody's looking for deals and somebody's running asset management. The other thing that I see mixed in is a construction manager from time to time. And usually all those folks are handling those different functions because depending on where you are in flow, it can be a full-time job. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I think is a struggle for a lot of folks who are starting out is trying to do everything, right? Mm -hmm. The other piece of that though is you need, say you're going to do, I don't know, let's call it a $2 million deal. And that's probably a little low to do syndication just because of all the fees and stuff let's just call it a $2 million deal, you know, you're going to need, you know, 30% of that, right? So you'll need 600,000 to get that deal closed. Being able to raise that at $25,000 a piece or $50,000 a piece is a good network of people. Now, what most people won't tell you is only about 10 to 20% of the people that you talk to are actually going to invest with you. And so not great at math, but, you know, 50 into 600,000, it's like 30 people, I think. Yeah. 20 people, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to get to 20, you got to talk to 200, right? Because only 10% are going to come through. And so if you don't have a database of 200 people, it's likely that you're not going to make your raise unless you can make it personal. Yeah. And so just understanding the scale of going through that is something that I think a lot of people miss. Yeah. So keep that in the back of your head as you're going through. As far as a team, I, I think it's no different than you would want for a battle buddy if you were going yeah. out into the field, right? You want somebody yeah. who knows has your back. You want to be predictable. You kind of want to be able to read their mind and know where they're going to be when the thing happens. You want to see somebody who's been in a stressful situation because something's not going to go as planned. You know this through your training in the military. Mm-hmm. Everything that you think is going to happen probably is not going to happen. All the things that you don't expect to happen are probably going to show up and you've got to have a way to respond to all of those situations, even if it's drawing it in the dirt. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. I think if your business plan is well thought through, then you'll have a lot of that stuff taken care of. If okay. your assumptions are well or done well, and really I'm not looking for them to be precise or even accurate. I'm looking for you to expect income to be lower than what it actually is. And I'm expecting you to find expenses to be higher than what they actually are. And if those two variables work, then your net operating income is going to be much higher than what you were shooting for, which 
goes evaluation and all the other stuff, right? So what you're really looking for is people who see the world the same way, back to morals and values. You want to take care of your resident. Everybody doesn't want to take care of the resident. It's going to be an absolute disaster, Jesse, if you partner with somebody who's just trying to maximize profit. It's going to be an absolute disaster for you. So make sure you guys have the same thoughts about your customers, right? And then from there, all right, if I'm strong technically, if I'm underwriting, great. Everybody probably wants to know what a model should look like. They want to understand assumptions. Everybody needs to really understand the assumptions because those are the levers that you're pulling to make your business plan work. Mm -hmm. Somebody may be better at networking than other people, so they can handle the raise. And that's a totally unique skill set in and of itself. But on the backside of the raise is the reporting. So you need somebody who, and I like to say, I like to eat my own dog food. I don't want somebody else to do the reporting and the asset management if I made the model. Okay. Right. Because now on the backside, I got to eat that. And I said, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then the assumptions don't come up. And this is why I get a little irritated when people outsource their underwriting, right, to somebody who isn't in the deal because they don't have to operate against it. So you can write whatever you want in the model. I can make it doesn't matter what you show me. I can make it show a 15 percent return. (laughs) It more lies have been told in Excel than ever have been written in Microsoft Word. Right. Yeah. I can move the numbers. I can change the cap rate. I can adjust the rent. I can do all of that stuff to get to the number that you want to see. But you need the integrity of the group of partners to say, yeah, we're not actually going to do that. And even if we do, we're not going to tell anybody that we're going to do that because the likelihood of that actually happening is really slim. Right. We want some fat. We want some cushion. And I think that's what's happening in the market is people are being so aggressive with their model to make it work that they have no cushion for it to go wrong. Yeah. Right. You don't, if you know you need, you've got an important meeting, you don't try to get to the meeting 30 seconds before it starts. You're probably there 30 minutes. And depending on what it is, you might be there two hours just so you can make sure that you get there. I mean, I I like airplane models and the airport tells you you need to be there two hours before your international flight. Yeah. Now I try to slide in 20 minutes before and I've always gotten turned away. They told me bags not going to make it. I can't get through security. They told me all the stuff, right? But we're buying deals and we're just running onto the plane as they're closing the door. And eventually somebody's going to get caught. And Mm -hmm. for me, I I think that's a mess. And so I I went on a rant because I think partnerships and syndication is, is the toughest thing because there's just so many moving parts when you're getting started. If there's a way for you to do it with the folks you've been doing it, plus a few others, because you've got results from the thing that you've already done, I would go there and then step up because you, you got to, again, back to the 200 people. I, I don't know if you do, but I, I don't know 200 people that are ready to invest with me right now. Mm-hmm. 25 grand. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of money for 200 people to give you. Yeah. No, I, I my network definitely isn't at that level yet. My goal is to talk to five new people a day, you know, through phone calls, Zooms, coffee, lunch, you know, whatever, and just meet five new people and kind of educate them on the benefits of real estate. I'm curious, kind of a follow-up question to what we were just talking about. Like when you look at, uh, you know, the syndication model versus like JVing a deal, you know, JVing maybe a smaller deal, you know, 20 to 50 units or 30 to 50 units, something like that. You know, what are the type of returns like 
on a smaller JV deal versus, you know, like a general partner on, on a syndicator and stuff like that. And, you know, acknowledge all that with syndication, you have a lot of fees and, and stuff like that. And you can get into waterfall and splits and stuff, but I'm curious about like, you know, if I were to, you know, as a first multifamily deal, if I just JV'd a, a 24 unit or 30 unit or something like that, like, what are your thoughts on, I guess, like getting into it kind of like that and, you know, achieving those types of returns? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm super bullish on it and, you know, I, I can't tell you how your project's going to perform, right? But what mm-hmm. I can tell you is when I look at a deal, if I can't figure out how to 2X our money over the course of five years, then I'm not interested in the deal because it's just too much work, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think you just, you have to go in and you really want to make sure you buy the deal well. And this is my whole game, right? I'm looking to be able to raise rents by $100. I want what I'm buying to be $100 on the market rent. at the. If it's not, then... I got to figure out how I can get the Delta to the NOI and maybe there's mm-hmm. expenses that I can drop down in order to get that hundred dollar Delta per unit over the course of however long, right? Two years, three years, whatever it is. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. The other thing that I see with modeling is people will just move the whole thing up, whatever they think the gap is between market and current in the first year. And I don't know anybody that's been successful at doing that, right? Okay. If, if it's renting at 500 a day, you think you're just going to go in and rent it at 600. I, I, I just don't know anybody that's been able to successfully do that. I think there's some steps in there. I think there may be a $50 bump or 45 or whatever it is for the first year. And then you do it again for the next. If you do go in and raise it by hundred, it's highly likely that everybody's going to move out. They will move out for hundred dollars a month, but they might, they probably won't move out for 25 to 50. And so you've got to figure out that game. We've taken projects where we went all the way to zero, right? Totally mm-hmm. vacant, right? Zero percent occupancy. I don't think it's the right way to do deals, but it is the way to get your rent up the fastest because you can go through, do all your rehabs. And then if you're growing rent a lot. And so on that project, we took rents from six ninety five to eleven ninety five, right? So it was just... The people who would live at a property and pay $700 a month are not the same people who would live at that same Absolutely. property and pay 1000 or 1100 1200 yeah. So the long and the short for me is like we look for the ability to double money over the course of five years. If we can't do that, then we pass. The upside for this, the smaller 20 to 50 is just usually somebody that's older. They have been running it themselves. They probably don't have third-party property management. They probably haven't explored selling it. So you're you're getting to them and they don't know what's actually happening in the market. So that allows you to negotiate a better cost basis than you would with somebody who bought it three years ago, is in a bunch of networking groups, has connections to brokers, actively looking to buy the next thing. They know what it's worth, right? And they're going to try to get you to buy and I, I, this is why I characterize, they're going to try to get you to buy a construction project for the after repair value 
And I, I, I just saw a 60 unit where they're asking for after repair value for a construction project that's at least half a million dollars. I, I, I don't understand why people do it, but they do. And so I, I think the returns on a percent basis are going to be more favorable for you the smaller you go into them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, definitely something I need to do, like increase my, you know, my literacy more with is understanding the different types of returns and, and just comparing the, you know, the syndication model versus JVing kind of a smaller uh, 20 to 50 unit. I think also, and you've kind of already touched on it, something to leverage in those smaller deals as you've kind of already talked about it, possibly an original ownership or maybe a mom and pop owner with that 30 or 40 unit or something like that. And I think there's more of an ability to kind of hunt off market with those deals for sure. Because so much what we do with the affordable housing and mobile home parks, obviously, is targeting those mom and pops and hunting off market where, you know, a larger, you know, 100 or 200 unit deal is almost always going to go through the broker to achieve a more sophisticated operator and stuff like that. So I, I think there's potential there too with those smaller deals to kind of hunt off market and and get it at better price per door. So for sure. I, I there's no comparison if you go direct to seller, even if it's just a function of eliminating a broker's fee. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, because everybody's looking, what's my net? After I pay everybody, what's my net? And if you can take three percent off the table, and for some of those guys, they're charging six percent. You could take that off the table and just take it out of your cost per door or even split it with the owner. You end up in a better spot. You know, I, I literally was looking at a deal um, last fall and I offered the guy forty five thousand per door for it. Mm-hmm. He went and listed it with somebody. and He sold it for sixty three. Right. And yeah. I mean, net of fees, I don't even know that it changed all that much for him. Yeah. But for that new buyer, I mean, and they're buying a construction project. I mean, it's rough. They're, they're going to yeah. have some work, right? But on the backside of it, I think they're actually going to be in a spot where they have to sell at a loss. I think they're mm-hmm. going to it just, I, I don't see how they can make money. And sure, cap rates can compress some more. But for me, that's speculation. That's not like market timing or investing or any of that. That is Clearly, we're counting on this to happen in order for it to work. And if you're counting on cap rate compression, where we are, where I think we're really at the bottom of where interest rates can go, I don't know how cap rates can compress. But, you know, that's just me looking at a crystal ball. Yeah. And uh, since you're since you are Jerome, pulling out your crystal ball, I always love hitting, you know, all sophisticated investors with, you know, their thoughts on kind of like where multifamily is going in the next one year, two year, five years. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, I could give my two cent opinion, but uh, you know, we believe that the greatest way to prepare for a downturn is to kind of be liquid, to make sure we have good cash reserves. And then obviously, you know, people will be in trouble if we do hit a downturn and there's opportunities to capitalize there. But I'm, I'm just curious, I mean, your thoughts on, on kind of where we're going here in the multifamily space in the next year, two years, five years and stuff like that. Sure. I, I'm the doom and gloom guy right now. I okay. think that every time they extend an eviction mor- moratorium, more owners get in trouble because less people are paying. Mm-hmm. And there's but so much cash that they have to service their debt. And for the people who did forbearance this time last year, most of them had to pay that back in 12 months. So we're coming to that. And so they've got to do a couple of things. They either have to refi, but if you're in yep. forbearance, nobody's going to give you money. it's a tough it's sticky situation right if your folks aren't paying and they're not willing to apply to the programs that are going to give some relief to the landlords then you got nothing and oh by the way they're just squatting your unit because you can't evict them there's but so long that people can actually endure it and the great thing about real estate is if you have money then you can just wait out the cycle 
But if you run out of money and the people aren't paying so that you have new income and they're staying in the unit more, so your expenses are going up because there's more wear and tear on your property, you got to do something. Yeah. Right. Now, the only thing that is left there is, okay, well, I'm ready to sell. What can I sell it for? So I think everybody was looking for COVID discounts this time last year. I think they were a year early. I think the second and third quarters where the COVID discounts come because people are out of money and they got to sell. Yeah. Now I could be totally wrong, but that's my crystal ball. I I think that is a true market opportunity. Now, as a buyer, what you have to be concerned about is grabbing a falling knife, right? It's going down. It keeps going down. What, when does it stop? Mm -hmm. When does the eviction moratorium end, right? Because they waited until two days before the last one expired to extend it another quarter. Yeah. So do they wait until June 30th to do it next time or do they end it? And I, I don't know the answer to the question. I assume it will correspond with the vaccine number hitting a certain number of people being vaccinated. But who knows? Yeah. It could keep going. I, I, I don't know. But if you're well capitalized to your point and you're ready to take action, I think there's an opportunity for you to get in the game. But for the people who've been counting on the cash flow, and this is the last thing I'll say here, the people who own these properties, the vast majority of their net worth is tied up in the property. It's their retirement plan. It was their cash flow. Oh, it's not cash flowing anymore. I got to unlock my equity. Yeah. So that forces a sell and sell at what number? Well, if you don't have financials, you're in trouble, right? Because the the debt is going to be sized off of the income. That's going to be sized off income. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, like I said, I love you know, hitting other sophisticated guys with that question, just getting their thoughts. I, I completely concur with with everything you're saying. And obviously no one has a crystal ball, but I believe in that mentality that later this year, and possibly the second, uh, third, fourth quarter, when guys run out of money, it, you could see some people get into trouble for sure. But yeah, I was curious your thoughts. But, uh, but yeah, let me think of one last thing to hit you with here. Um, you know, when it comes to the actual kind of value add piece, and you kind of already talked about it with raising rents, that that hundred dollars, you know, I feel like you can't just obviously raise rents a hundred dollars. Like what are some small like value add things that you guys do to the units and stuff like that to kind of, you know, reciprocate or, you know, acknowledge that hundred dollar uh, raise? Yeah. So outside of renovating, I, there isn't a lot, right? Yeah. You could upgrade appliances, but that does some stuff, but not a ton. I've seen people put in ceiling fans. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've seen people do accent walls, right? But (laughs) for the stuff that we're doing, right? With the workforce housing that we're working with, you know, they just really want a safe, clean, nice exterior place to live. Absolutely. Right. And as long as we're making sure that everybody is a good neighbor, doing everything we can to keep drugs out of the complex, because that just always attracts traffic. And we take care of maintenance issues quickly. And well, so that we don't have a bunch of callbacks, people are ecstatic, man. Yeah. And that's what leads to retention. What, what I'll say is if you can't get rid of the trash and you can't take care of, return their phone calls, you lose people all the time. But if you can take care of those things, you'll get some residents to stay forever and you can bump their rent a little bit. You know, we, we bought a property almost three years ago now, and we've still got 25% of the people there from when we first bought it. And every time that we get to a lease renewal, we raise their rent 30 to $50. And so they're getting closer to what market rent is, but they're still holding us back. And, you know, some people say you're crazy, like just take them to market 
because they can't go anywhere else. Well, yeah, but I didn't have to renovate the unit at $5,000. So do I really need to take it to market or are we okay here? Right. And I, I, I really enjoy getting the income without having to spend the $5,000 to fix the unit or $7,500 if you've got to do flooring and appliances. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's definitely a concept where you're not putting in, uh, you know, whatever granite countertops and whatever 2020 plan appliances or, or whatnot, you're just supplying, uh, you know, your, your consumer with just a good product, a responsive product. When they need something, you're coming to help them. I mean, it's pretty simple. I, I think great customer service, right? <laughs> Greeting them, treating them like people. Right. These are the folks that make the world go round, man. We're talking retail workers, firefighters, police officers, teachers, like people who make the world go round. Yeah. They deserve the respect. They deserve the common courtesy. And I think there's some folks who 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 discount them, degrade them. You know, it's you're not special, you're not important, but they don't see them as customers. And we do. They're and my partner will take it a step further. He he calls them your partners, right? I like They're, that. They, they're partners in it, right? They're providing the income so that you can do all the stuff that you want to do. I don't know that I'm all the way there yet, but I do absolutely believe that they're customers. And yeah, I, I want to make sure that our customers are satisfied because satisfied customers not only stay and keep continue to buy from you, but they also refer other folks nice. to you. And yeah. as we grow, then we, we want to have those referrals. We want people smiling and it, proud of where they live and wanting other people to say, Hey, there's an opportunity for me to come live near you or in another one of those communities. So that, that's something we get really excited about, man. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, referrals, people who stay, I'm sure people who take good care of the units as well. You know, if you'd like, if you love where you live and you love the people you're living with, you're going to, you're going to want to take care of it too. So. For sure. Any, yeah. anything else I can knock out for you, brother? No, man, that's pretty much it. I, I appreciate the time again. Like, I feel like I just got on here and, and rattled off question after question and you knocked every single one of them out of the park. So I, I can't thank you enough, Jerome, for taking time to uh, get on this and let me be on today. It's, it's huge. So thank you. Sure, man. If we can do anything, let me know, brother. I'm excited for you. And again, thank you for your service. And uh, to the listeners, your dreams should be real. The pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.